Well, as I just alluded to, so last week we ended a four-week series on lust, and perhaps many of you, especially the girls, go, yes, I'm tired of that topic. Let's move on. However, we just thought, I heard from a couple of leaders last week, and we thought it would be really, really beneficial to take one week, just one week, and talk about marriage. Talk about marriage. Um, Marriage is kind of under attack in our culture today. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. but I know for a lot of students, maybe you're like, I don't, I'm not so hot on marriage. I, I don't know that I want to get married. And so we thought this is an incredibly important topic for us to talk about tonight. You say, uh, Brad, I'm in high school. In fact, Brad, I'm a freshman. Why are we talking about marriage at Oasis? We're all high schoolers. Isn't, this, isn't that kind of like far away? Um, and still, I hope you know, like I hope you want to hear what I have to say tonight. Um, in five to ten years or less, Many, if not most of you, will be at a place where you could get married. Some of you will be married in five to ten years. Um, Seniors, in about six months, you will be in college, or a lot of you are maybe going military. You're suddenly, wherever state you end up in, you'll be considered an adult. Um, The time will go fast, and you need to hear this stuff. And the stuff that we talk about tonight, even, you need to have, you need to know what you want and what you're looking for and who you're looking for and should I get married? Should I not? Um, and you're all practicing marriage right now to some extent with your relationships with the opposite gender, whether you know that or not, how you treat them. So my goal tonight is I want to argue and to try to make the case that marriage is a really great option. I'm not saying it's the only option. It's certainly fine for you to stay single, but it's a great option. So we're going to start with the scripture text tonight. I don't always do that, but I want to start there tonight and uh, So grab your Bibles, grab your apps, turn to the book of Ephesians, New Testament letter of Ephesians, written by Paul, turn to chapter 5. In chapter 5, starting at verse 21, a lot of Bibles maybe start at verse 22, this is probably the most well-known, and I don't know if you could say most important in the Bible, but most important passage in the Bible concerning marriage. Um, a very, very central passage in the Bible. Jesus addresses marriage to some degree more in context when he was asked about divorce. Um, The cool thing about this passage, you guys, end of chapter 5, it really expounds on the other really great passage in the Bible about marriage, which is Genesis 2, second chapter in the Bible, and Paul actually quotes that in here. Now, um, for time's sake, I've got a lot of material I want to get to tonight, and and so I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I want you to get parts of this Most of you, if you've grown up in church, and a lot of you have, you've read this before. So I'm going to skip around a little bit. Start at verse 21, though. 21 is really before the heading in my Bible, but it says, Paul writes, Submit to one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Skip down to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then skip down to verse 31. You'll notice this is in quotes. Paul's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. God said this through Moses For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul writes, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So, where do we begin with all of this? And I didn't even read that whole passage. I'm not going to kind of break apart that passage, but I wanted you to see glimpses of just Paul's teaching, the biblical teaching in that central passage. 
We're going to start tonight by talking about the current state of marriage in our culture today, the current state of marriage. Like I said, things aren't maybe great. And so I'm going to start with some research. These are some recent stats about marriage in America. Some of you maybe hate stats. I don't want to bore you with a bunch of stats. I'm going to give you a couple, though, and I'm going to start with three. And these probably aren't shocking to you. They shouldn't necessarily be. You'll know most of them. Number one, the divorce rate today is, is at about 45%. Maybe you've heard it's at about 50%, which is close, but it's actually at about 45%. But that's kind of scary, right? Almost half of all marriages end in divorce. Almost half end in divorce. This is double what it was in 1960, though. 50 years ago, in 1960, it was only about 23%. So maybe you, maybe you knew that, probably heard that before. Secondly, in 1960, Get this, almost 75% of all U.S. adults got married. Almost 75% of people, U.S. adults, got married. Now, it's only about 50%. Only about half get married. That's a, that's a big change. That's a significant change. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's big. And then finally, um, kind of a different topic. In 1960, cohabitation, which is two non-married sort of dating individuals um, li- who live together, in 1960, that number was less than 1%. Almost, I mean, not necessarily not at all, but less than 1%. Today, about 25% of individuals ages, ages 25 through 40 are living with a partner without being married. Today, it's at about 25%. But get this, the stats are showing that in the next 20 to 30 years, that number will rise to about 50%, which means that's one in two one in two of you, that at some point in their lives, about half of all Americans will at some point live with a romantic or dating partner before getting married. Um, So again, not all that shocking, maybe to some of you, maybe that is, but that's just the current, that's kind of where things are at today. Um, But it is, the difference is striking. In 50 years, that's that's a pretty big difference. Now, um, I want to give you, here's a couple set of assumptions that kind of came along. Again, this is not biblical stuff. Obviously, this is empirical. This is Social science research was done. These are the stats um, found in this book. Number one, here's a set of assumptions. In young adults, and I think this study was particularly done among high, high school students, there's a sense that most marriages are unhappy. Like, no shock there, right? Most marriages are unhappy. Many of you in here are maybe like, dang right, like, I don't, I don't know that my parents' marriage is all that happy. Maybe you think that. Because, it, as I said, if half, if, if the divorce rate is almost 50%, a lot of people probably assume if the divorce rate is like almost half, then the other 50%, I mean, there's got to be some unhappy marriages. But so, predominantly, young adults think that, that most marriages are unhappy. Um, so that's the first one. Secondly, second assumption is this. Second assumption is that living together before you're married is a great way to, to discover if you are compatible with somebody else, especially when it comes to sexual and romantic chemistry. That whole combat, compatibility thing, and especially like, I want to know if I have sexual chemistry with a person, um, it really seems to be the key today. It, that's what the research is finding, that that's, the, that's kind of the predominant thing. I don't know that that was all that big for your grandparents when your grandparents met each other. In fact, some of your grandparents maybe had still had some kind of an arranged marriage almost. You're like, you know, John, this is, this is Linda, you're going to get married, have fun with that. And they just did it. But today, the key, they're saying, the key 
to a satisfying marriage, they say, is finding a compatible mate. Compatible. Finding a soulmate. And in fact, um, eHarmony and all those like dating websites, it's pretty much like they're hoping to sell people on finding a compatible mate. And a lot of times it comes out like this. Um, here's a person who won't change you and who won't expect you to change them. You need to find someone who won't change you, who accepts you completely as you are, never really expects you to change, um, and that's the key. That's what you need to find. And then here's the third thing. This isn't necessarily an assumption. Another stat. When asked to high school students, do you believe that being married is better for individuals than being single? Do you believe that being married is better for individuals than being single? Only one-third said yes. Only one-third said yes, which means there's maybe a lot of just not-so-great marriages in American homes. I don't know. I don't know how your house is. Your parents are divorced. Maybe you're now seeing a parent and a step-parent in your house. Comedian Chris Rock, you all know who Chris Rock is. He's starting to get older, maybe more my generation. Chris Rock once asked this question, and maybe, I don't know if this is on SNL, but he said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And it, the crazy thing is, a lot of young people today, not you guys, I'm not talking about you, maybe early uh, young 20-somethings, tend to think that those are the only two options. And in fact, I think that's maybe why so many are kind of opting for somewhat of a middle ground between these two, it's not up there anymore, um, of like, I'm not going to go all the way and get married, I, I might be bored, or it seems like you might be bored. So again, let's, let's live together, and I'm not, just, I'm not trying to nail like co- cohabiting tonight, but let's live together. I still want to have a sexual relationship with somebody, but I'm not going to fully commit. I kind of get best of both worlds here. Um, all I'm trying to say is, I'm, I've got one more set of um, kind of stats. There's a real fear about marriage today. That's what I'm trying to get. There's a real insecurity about marriage today, and the research is saying it. And maybe you're here tonight and you're feeling it. Perhaps you're very skeptical about marriage. Um, despite, though, despite the views of marriage in our culture, all the things I just read, here's another set of empirical facts that social, social scientists have found that really show the reality. Just a couple things. First of all, this. The evidence shows, these first two are pretty striking. The evidence shows that those who live together before marriage are actually more likely to get divorced than those who don't. Those who live together before they get married and then they get married, they're more likely to divorce than those who don't. Secondly, in general, the earlier that sex is introduced into a relationship, the more likely that relationship is to break up and fail. Okay? The earlier sex is, is introduced, the more likely that relationship is to break up and fail. And most young adults really um, don't want to believe those two things. In fact, one thing I read said the researchers were very, very shocked to find that the evidence actually showed that those two things were, in fact, the case. Um, and then thirdly, yes, the divorce rate is nearly 50%, close to that. But get this, the highest percentage of divorces are among um, people who are married before the age of 18 and never finish high school. There's actually a fair amount of that going on. Boyfriends and girlfriends maybe get pregnant, or maybe they're not boyfriends and girlfriends, but you get pregnant, have a baby, and so these parents, I guess maybe, are like, you guys are getting married. The highest percentage of people today, you guys, that get divorced are under the age of 18 and haven't completed high school, which means you guys in here, if you finish high school, if you go on to college, if you get married, say, in your early 20s, your chances of divorce are much, 
much less than 50%. You have a great, you have a great chance of having a really great, successful marriage. Um, also, two-thirds of all marriages who early on say that they're unhappy, if they stay together five years, they said they were happy. Like five years later, they took the survey or whatever, said they're happy. Um, a couple more. Also, over the last 40 years, this stat said 62% of people who have stayed married say that they are not just happy, but very happy. You know, you're checking the boxes. Not just happy, very happy. 62%. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, and then finally, there's piles and piles of data I won't go into that even just quite honestly says married people have um, higher physical health, better, better mental health, mo- better wealth accrual just as a couple, um, and loads of other data that just says it's very healthy. Um, okay, so that's like pretty much the end of my kind of first, I just slammed you with statistics, um, but that's my first point, the current state of marriage in our culture today. What's, what's my first point? What am I saying? I'm saying that even though our culture tends to have tremendous fear and insecurity about marriage, maybe he's very skeptical about marriage, maybe you're here and you would say, I'm never going to get married, I don't want to have the, the marriage my parents have, that despite that, the reality, the factual evidence shows that marriage is still the greatest thing for you if you can, if you, I mean, if you can get it, if you can find someone. Now, I'm not, I mean, it's a really great option. I don't, I, I don't have time to get into it. I'm not saying that you cannot have a very, very happy and productive life as a single person. Um, you absolutely can. And in fact, the Bible holds up a tremendously high view compared to other worldviews about that, that you can, you can have a tremendously productive and successful life as a single person. But that's a talk for a different time. Um, so that's that. Okay, so I'm going to get to this. Why is this? Why this unreal and distorted view of marriage today? If many of our, our, culture, our current views of marriage aren't based on reality, and they're, and they're not, I mean, this, this research is showing that they're not, then why are, so people, why are people so, so negative about it, so afraid of it? Why, why, are they, why do they keep putting it off? There's a number of, of attitudes as to why I'm kind of watching my time. I'm going to skip kind of a section here. Um, well, I think we've lost what the purpose of marriage is. In fact, a great book, I referenced a number of books in this study, great book. I love this, this pastor in New York City um, named Tim Keller, but he did extensive research and just put out a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Um, so he kind of goes into, like, what's the purpose of marriage? But I'm going to skip down here. Basically, what happened? This is somewhat, um, a, a number of people maybe have this view, that I would say in the past number of decades and even centuries, we've gotten more selfish and more individualistic at the core of our beliefs. We've gotten more selfish and more individualistic at the core of our beliefs. I'm going to quote one guy here. His name's John Witte, and this guy's an, a historian and a legal scholar. And he, um, he says this. This will pop up on the screens. The earlier idea of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, that means making babies, if you don't know, and protection, is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. He kind of alludes to there that the more like, I mean, a couple hundred years ago, marriage was really a a public good. It was beneficial for you, your spouse, your family. It was good for society. It was a great place for children to kind of just be raised and and grow up. Um, But he's saying that's really kind of, and this guy, John Witte, really dates it back to the 
um, 18th and 19th century Enlightenment period, and I'm not going all history on you, but that's why I say this is like, this is not just the difference from the 60s until now. This, is a, this, is, this dates back a ways. One other thing, an early um, 2011 article in the New York Times was entitled this, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage, in which case this writer talks about, again, this same shift I'm just talking about, and she ends the article saying, marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. Marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. Um, now that's what's happened. This switch has kind of taken place in this view now says, essentially, the purpose of marriage is not for me to make a sacrifice to anyone. It's not for me to, so, to show sacrificial love here to this, this woman, this spouse of mine. No, I need to find someone who's compatible with me, who won't try to change me, somebody who accepts me as I am, who affirms me, who helps me reach my goals. That's the person I have to find. Oh, and I also, I really need to have a great sexual relationship with them as well. I mean, that's really kind of rising to the top among people today. Because they say the whole purpose of marriage now, again, this is kind of the new, the new view of so many people. The whole purpose of marriage now is fulfillment. Personal, individual fulfillment. And, I mean, that's the goal. And maybe you're like, I thought that was the goal. What, what are you talking about? And we'll get there. Um, but maybe you're like, if I can't get that, people are like, if I can't get that, I'm just not getting married. And if I'm in a marriage like that and I don't have, my feelings are gone, I'm out. I'm done. Forget our, forget our marriage vows. Here's the problem, and this is, this is my main point. That approach, this new view, this new approach that is a lot of people have in our culture today, this approach puts more pressure on marriage than the Bible even puts on marriage. It puts more pressure on marriage than any culture has ever put on marriage. And marriage is an incredibly important thing. I'm not saying to take it lightly, but this view puts more pressure on marriage than anyone ever has and than the Bible ever has. It puts tremendous pressure on marriage and on the two individuals that join together in it. Think about this. Who do you have to find? Who do you have to find for a me-centered marriage? Who do you have to find? First of all, you have to find someone who doesn't think there's anything wrong with you. Because you can't let them change you at all. And then, secondly, you, have, you kind of have to find someone who you don't think needs to change at all. Like, you are perfect exactly the way you are. I'm not going to change you. I'm not going to try to change you. There should rarely be any conflict. The other person always needs to look really great for you. You always need to keep up appearances. They start not taking care of themselves. Oh, it's gone. Um, there must be this desire constantly to get into bed. As I've already said, there has to be like this regular, this sexual um, intimacy is huge. You constantly, you just, you can't lose the feeling of being like on the honeymoon phase in love all the time. That has to be absolutely natural. And here's the problem with that. Um, no one's going to find anybody like that anywhere. I mean, again, you like to think that when you meet that girl, that first date or whatever, like, oh, she's perfect. She's so perfect. Or girls, you think, oh, the guy's absolutely perfect. But everybody's got stuff that needs to change. You have to find someone that's absolutely low maintenance. And you have to be actually quite low maintenance yourself. Because things just have to go very, very smoothly or you're out. And then let's add to it this. In the church, and uh, 
in the church, and I don't, again, I don't know if this is necessarily you, but I just I kind of want to say this. In the church, we take all these expectations that the culture, we take the culture's view of marriage, and a lot of times we throw on it kind of this Christian stuff. And so, um, fellows especially, we'll say, you, you say, well, I, I also want to marry a Christian. You're looking for like this perfect angel. So, guys, you say, well, I definitely want to marry a Christian, but she has to be absolutely gorgeous. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Like, like a, like a model, like a Hollywood celebrity, cover of a magazine or the girls that I see other places. She has to be absolutely gorgeous. And fellas, you skip over a phenomenal crowd of amazing, amazing young ladies because she doesn't look like a model. And ladies, maybe you say, I really want to date a really great Christian guy, but he's really got to be quite the provider. I mean, he's really got to make a lot of money if he's going to pay for my stuff. He's just got her, I'm out. I like stuff. And so we start loading on more and more expectations. You guys, I'm not saying you should, you should ditch your expectations of finding a Christian. You should. I'm saying we throw that stuff then on top of what we already have is a really a distorted view of marriage like the culture has. In the past, you're just not going to find someone anywhere. Um, again, this isn't you now. But you guys, seriously, you need to think about, this is you in the next five to ten years. Who are you going to be looking for? Are you going to go after the me-centered marriage? Is that what you want? Are these attitudes present in you? Are they going to be present in you? Um, You're going to try to find the perfect guy, and the perfect guy doesn't exist. And guys, the perfect girl doesn't exist. But that's okay. In fact, once you realize this, once you realize that you aren't, you aren't going to find the perfect person anywhere, when you're married someday and you hit a rough patch in your marriage, you won't be surprised. And you're not going to jump ship and bail because you've learned to deal with conflict or you've learned, you know the fact that they're not going to, they're not going to look like they were at 18 forever. But then this too. The reality is, and you all know this because you have parents at home, marriage is difficult. It is hard. Anytime you put two sinful people together, that automatically means conflict, even if they're Christians, even if they're like phenomenal Christians and they've been Christians their whole life. Two sinful people means two very, very self-centered people. Plus, men and women have these, these like major differences. That's the beauty of marriage is that men and women um, bond well together, like they complete each other, and they also clash very well. And so you add all those things together um, it's not always going to be easy. Conflict's going to come, and yet any relationship has conflict. Every relationship has conflict. Tim Keller in this book writes this, if you avoid marriage, listen to this, if you avoid marriage simply because you don't want to lose your freedom, that is one of the worst things you can do to your heart. And then he quotes from C.S. Lewis, who I feel like I'm quoting every week I teach. C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, The Four Loves, Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. He says the alternative to love, or at least to the risk of love, is damnation. 
Now, he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about love. So he's not saying if you don't get married, you're like doomed. But he's saying the alternative to even the risk of love, it's not freedom. So how does, how does, the, Bible, like, how does the Bible and the gospel help change this? Here's, here's what the Bible gives us that, is, that, the cultural, that our culture desperately needs to hear. And it's this, that love is a covenantal thing. And as soon as I say that, I use that word covenant numerous times during the Lust series. And you all go, what the heck does that word mean? Brad, we don't even use that word anymore, and we don't. But you know what? Even someone said to me, um, could you use like a more, a more modern word? No, actually, I, I really can't. I don't know. I could maybe try to substitute um, contract, but contract doesn't really do it. Here's what a covenant is. Here's kind of a little nutshell. A covenant is an incredible, unbelievable, and for our society, counterintuitive understanding of love and law together. It is incredibly personal and intimate. It is, more, it is more binding because it is legal. That one of the great things about marriage is the fact that I wake up in the morning and maybe my feelings aren't for my wife anymore. You know what? I'm legally married to her. It's going to be a whole lot of work and mess to end that. And I just go, you know what? I really love my wife and I'm just going to deal with this. There's really something about the legal aspect. You live with a guy forever, girls, you, never, you can never put your guard down. If you aren't married with him, you're just cohabitating, you, can never, you, can, you can't go a day without wearing your makeup. Why? You've got to keep, the, you got to keep, you got to keep marketing up. You've got to keep sleeping with him. Otherwise, he might move on to some other guy. That's the beauty of the covenant of marriage. I've got to skip more. Here's what a covenant also shows us. It shows us what love really is. Here's the thing. When Leslie and I started dating... There was this electrical thrill every time I grabbed her hand or she grabbed mine. You know? How? Now, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going. You say, Brad, do you still get that same electrical thrill every time you hold her hand? And I would say, well, kind of, but not the same, no, and thank goodness. Here's why. Here's why. And you're going to be like, what? I'm going to read this because I, I actually I heard this. This is not my own, this is not my own sentence. The thrill of holding hands before we were married was not so much because of the magnitude of my love for her, but because of the flattery of her choice of me. See, the reason for that thrill when you first start dating, it's your ego. It's really not so much that you absolutely love her. You don't even know her yet, guys, when you start dating this girl. You don't even know her. You don't even know him yet. You know, the thing is, someone you like is responding to you, and that feels really great. But that, that thing, that thing that gets you excited, that, make the feeling, that makes the feelings come, it's your ego. That's what's called infatuation. Last week, I grabbed some of these questions. A girl writes, how do you know the difference between from being in love or in lust? Or maybe in love or infatuation? I would say, you want to be in love? You want to find love? You marry that guy. You get married. You stick vows to that. That's how I know. Otherwise, there's no promises. It's your ego. What is love? Love is sacrificial service. Love is delighting in someone who you are absolutely committed to. Raising kids is much this way. You give and you give. Any of you parents in here, you give and you give, and you get nothing in return from your kids. Your kids are young and helpless, and yet you are so crazy about them. You guys, that is what love really is. That's why you see all throughout this passage of Ephesians we read this mutual submission, putting the other person first. And you begin to admire as you as you experience a marriage, you begin to admire the other person for what they've gone through for you and with you. 
and you've worked through things together, and, and you repent, and you ask for forgiveness, and you apologize, and you fight, and you do the whole thing all over again, and you grow, and you grow, and you start to see what real love really is. And you know what? That, in the end, is the most attractive and thrilling thing about it. And I'm telling you, it's absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. You can't have a friendship without, you're going to fight. Who cares? You work through that stuff, but you marry that girl. So lastly, where do you get the power to sacrificially love someone like this? Like, Brad, don't you get tired of it? Like, how do you stick with it? Where do you get the power to keep loving this person even when, even when you find out that they're not anything like what you thought they were, two months into the marriage, you are not the person I thought you were. Um, how do you keep going when you're tired of it, when you're not feeling it, when you realize, wow, you know what? Marriage brings out the worst in me. I've felt that before. You'll, you'll feel that maybe someday. Wow, marriage is like, I didn't realize I could get this mad. I didn't realize I could get this frustrated and impatient. Maybe someone thinks, I, I didn't realize I could lie this much. And that's when you have to see Jesus Christ, when he's on the cross, looked down at us, you guys, and saw us betraying him, denying him, abandoning him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, he stayed on the cross. And he stayed not because we were lovely, but he stayed to make us lovely. And when I start to realize that, and when I start to be melted by that, when I think about what he, can, what he did for me, I can look at my wife, and she can look at me. And she can say, Brad, I look at you, and at times you've hurt me. But you know what? I can cover that, and I can forgive that. How? Because when I look at Jesus, he looks into my heart. And because my sin drove him to the cross, he still loved and forgave me. and He stayed there for me, and he forgave me. And so you know what? I can forgive you. We've got the power of grace to make marriage what it can be and what it should be. And it's really, really great. And it's the greatest relationship I think possible apart from a relationship with the Lord, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My hope is that you guys will take that gospel, just the simple gospel, And that you'll apply it to your own relationships, even now, whether you're dating, whether you're single. Apply it to your relationships. Don't abandon marriage. At least keep it as a really great option. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you teach us about marriage. God, I'm I'm thankful that Paul says, you guys, it's a whole mystery and we don't even get it. But the whole marriage thing, it's really a picture of Christ and the church. God, you gave yourself up for the church, and so I should go and just give myself up for my bride more than I do. I should lay down my life for her. God, I can forgive her. God, how can I forgive her? Because you on the cross forgave me when my sin drove you there. God, we need that. We need that in our lives. God, we need that in our friendships. We need that in all our relationships. God, may it melt our heart. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.